everyone, and welcome to another episode of Granite Talk. My name is Tim Finan, and I will be your host for today's episode. My guest this week is Andrew Pennard. Andrew is an actor, director, magician, teacher, writer, basically your all-around performer and theater guy. He has performed his unique brand of magic and comedy for thousands of delighted audiences throughout New Hampshire and the Northeast since 1991. Uh, Andrew, welcome to Granite Talk. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Did I get your uh, intro reasonably well? I think it sounds pretty good. I don't like to call myself a magician. I like to think of myself as a perceptual engineer. Ooh, I like that. It pays better. You know, anytime you add engineer to something, you can always bump up your rates. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so why don't you just start start telling us a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into this and, and just kind of who you are. Sure. Uh, I lived in New Hampshire the bulk of my life. I was actually born uh, in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, at Andrews Air Force Base. That's not why my name is Andrew, but it just (laughs) happens to be a a coincidence. My father was in the the Marines, uh, stationed at Camp David, uh, and uh, we lived down there for the first year or so of my life, uh, and then moved back to New Hampshire. But I, you know, I was interested in um, music and theater from a very young age. Um, my parents took me to see a couple of productions, including uh, a production by the St. Anselm uh, Abbey Players uh, back around 1975 or so, uh, and they borrowed a, you know, one of my props. My mother, I think, helped with the costumes or something. Um, but I studied music rather intensely and I was intended to go on to college and did go on to college for music education. Um, but I was also doing theater. So I switched majors a couple of times. I went from music education to theater and then back to music. Uh, I performed in community theater. I performed in regional theater. I worked professionally, uh, doing summer stock theater and regional theater, uh, in the Northeast. Uh, and I, you know, left college uh, before I got my degree. Actually, it took me 20 years, more, more than 20 years to get my degree. Uh, I left college when they were renovating uh, the Performing Arts Building, and we were going to be living like migrants from uh, building to building, and I just didn't feel like doing that. So I ended up working with a friend of mine who owned a typesetting company, and I helped him transition uh, from a photoelectric composition, which was a special typesetting system, to uh, the earliest form of desktop publishing on Windows 3.1 machines and using wow. Aldous PageMaker. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, I taught theater for a couple of years, well, for five years uh, at Pembroke Academy. Uh, I did theater and toured uh, with a couple of productions, had my own theater company, uh, and was the director of the Pittsfield Community Center for a spell. So I did a lot of different things. But I ended up, uh, I was interested in magic and gave my first magic show in the second grade and uh, stopped when I hit fifth grade and started studying music. Uh, And so magic was kind of, you know, not directly in my mind, although some of the stuff, the sleight of hand with coins and cards was stuff I would play at, but I didn't really study it. It was more just a way to fiddle with your hands before those fidget spinners have come out. Um, but while I was uh, working at the typesetting company and teaching at Pembroke Academy, I came across a book that had a prop uh, that I had when I was a kid. Uh, and uh, my girlfriend at the time bought me the book. And I spent, she's now my wife, uh, 
and uh, I have either everything to thank her for or everybody else can complain about the fact <laughs> that she supported my interests. But I studied magic uh, pretty intensely, pretty much between anywhere from six to eight hours a day, uh, almost every day for two years. And over the course of those two years, um, people started to hear about what I was doing and they started hiring me for shows. And by the end of two years, I had to quit all the other work that I was doing uh, and uh, basically go full time with magic and really haven't looked back. Wow, that that that's really interesting. And and I didn't say at the beginning, and, and you and I discussed this offline earlier or over emails, actually, but we actually have met a couple of times and uh, you, you probably don't remember it, uh, at least prior to when I mentioned to you, but you were doing a magic show for, I think, a couple of different years. Uh, I worked for Cisco Systems, and you went down. They used to have a Christmas uh, party event uh, every year at Borders Books down in Nashua, and then you would be like a wandering magician going around uh, doing tricks for everybody, and yeah. it, was really, it was really cool. Yeah, I remember those fondly. I did those for a number of years. The woman who hired me for those, her name was Peg, uh, uh-huh. used to bring me in every year, uh, and we did it for a bunch of years. And that came out as an offshoot. You know, in magic, I've done a lot of stuff. I've always been interested in performing as a musician, as a as an actor. And, you know, being a magician is just another form of performance. It's a different media, but it's uh, it's still performance. And for a long time, I was performing strolling magic at restaurants and bars. And in fact, I had 11 years. I performed twice a week at Newark Seafood Restaurant in Merrimack, New Hampshire. And wow. it got me lots of gigs. People saw me there uh, and they hired me for their corporate events and functions. And I did trade shows. I did opera house tours. We did illusion shows. I did original pieces. Uh, and the the restaurant work I did for about 15 years. In fact, I even uh, helped to publish a magazine on restaurant and bar magic. Uh, for We did that for 11 years um, called The Magic Menu. And that was a lot of fun. So that's um okay so that's that's cool so you you did that uh, just back to our history again briefly because then I ran into you again several years later uh, you were a selectman up in I think I don't know, Warner or somewhere up there Bradford and, yep Bradford and I was a selectman in Milford and we were at some training seminar and I remember looking across the table at you I was like I think it's that magic guy that I remember from uh, Nashua so we met there too. So Bradford, that's isn't Bradford? Isn't that where? Um... Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, that's where Helene Maxwell uh, from the Jeffrey Epstein case was recently discovered hiding out. Uh, in fact, ah. the house that she was living in was actually owned by family friends of ours who had sold the house a couple of years earlier and retired, I believe, to Florida. So as soon as we heard about the estate that she was caught in, we found I, I knew immediately which property it had to be. Uh, so yeah, there, we've got a little notoriety for that. Oh, that's interesting. You can find a work that into your comedy somehow. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think I'm going to avoid that one. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe a few years down the road. So. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I, I appreciate your uh, your serving uh, as an elected official. I did it for three years as a selectman uh, and served on the planning board, the zoning board, um, the budget committee, and then I migrated to the Kearsarge Regional School District School Board as a representative from Bradford. And I did that for 12 years. So, you know, public service has always been kind of a part of what I do. Yeah. Um, It's the same with me. As a matter of fact, it's kind of how I got to, to this, to doing this podcast stuff. I, uh, I, 
yeah, I was a selectman for six years, and I've I've been on every committee in town. I'm I'm still on the planning board. I've been on the planning board for probably fifteen or twenty years, and on and on. And I I helped start our community media department. Our you know our um, TV stations, the the Wayne's World uh, public access. Exactly. So we started that probably 10, 15 years ago, and, and we've been slowly building that thing up into a uh, a, a kind of a, a more elaborate media machine, if you will. And we've started doing podcasts, and that's how I started doing podcasts for them. I, I have absolutely nothing to do with this. I'm an engineer by trade. I work. I still work for Cisco, as as I mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, I, I've been involved in public, you know, public stuff forever. That's so great. It is. It's it's, uh, very satisfying. Milford is a wonderful little community. I actually, uh, my first restaurant that I ever performed in was in Milford. It was the Colonel Shepherd House, which I believe became a Montessori school. It, it, um, yeah, it, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yes, it it became a Montessori school, and now it's a a friend of mine owns it, bought it, and um, it's like an event center now. Oh, that's great. But it, but it's really it's really nice. Uh, so I was going to ask you about that because I know Milford does have a a um, kind of a, a I don't know if significance is the right word, but it has a history in in theater. You know, the original. And you had mentioned I've read all your all your. Uh, websites in the last you know, few days trying to I'm sorry um, get some notes <laughs> you you have more websites than I do it's like actually I don't have websites I have domains every time I see a domain that I think I'm going to make a million dollars on I buy the domain and do nothing with it I, I did the exact same thing I owned the yankeenotions.com domain for well over 20 years before I finally got rid of it I thought I'm going to do something with this yankee notions sounds like a fun and yep. I just never did anything with it yeah but, I do the same thing but I found on one of those websites I don't know which one it was that you you either performed at the American Stage Festival or worked with them. You you had something to do with them for a while. Yeah, I consulted uh, with them on shows mainly for special effects and and some of the theater stuff. Um, was that when they were in Milford? Because they were in Milford. Was, now they're down in Nashua. Yeah, that was in Milford and also in Nashua. But I I worked uh, predominantly in Milford, and in fact, uh, my brother in law performed on the ASF stage as well. So uh, no. there, that's now the Amato Center. Uh, yep. Exactly. But no, that was, a again, that was one of the many uh, theater companies I had the great privilege to work with uh, over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's uh, that that's great because we also, we have the, the, let's see, what do we have, the Peacock Players over there and I think Playhouse 101, this goes back years, that used to be like a precursor to the stage festival. Um, oh yeah, no. I, I saw several shows at the at ASF there in Milford, and yeah. some of the other things. I mean, you've got a really wonderful community down there. The uh, the Pumpkin Festival. I performed at the Pumpkin Festival for years. Oh, um, did you? Yeah, uh, Bellamance Beverage used to bring me in, and I would go from restaurant to restaurant performing about a half hour show, and I would do that for five or six hours over the course of the night and get to as many restaurants as possible. Oh, that's really interesting because that's one of the things I'm involved in. I'm on the Pumpkin Festival Committee, and we just met last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, needless to say, uh, little, if anything's going to happen this year. Um, but we were talking about – we're always talking about those kind of things. Um, my, I'm in the Milford Rotary Club, too, and we run the uh, – I don't know if you've been down in the last few years, but in the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a beer tent down at the, at the Pumpkin Festival. We're bringing all the, the breweries come in and have a little beer festival. We run yep. that. So we're always talking about 
what kind of entertainment we can get. So it's that's probably been four or five years since I, I know I did work the first year or two at the beer tent. Cause I remember they would bring me in and I, it was outside and they had the heaters cause it was quite cold the night <laughs> that I was there. Uh, I also had the great privilege of opening a, a cookie shop. I was the performer at the main uh, opening of a place called Katie crumbles that used to be uh, right there on the oval. And yep, they unfortunately well. have been closed a bunch of years, but actually it's interesting because I worked their uh, their wed- the owner's wedding, and their daughter uh, Katie uh, Hickman is uh, a performer who has actually worked on our stage quite a few times here at Hatbox Theater in Concord. So, oh. you know, small community, um, you know, in our state, and it's really great to be able to connect with people from all around. But I love Milford. Milford is a wonderful, wonderful area. Yeah, so do I. So, that, okay, so you brought up the Hatbox Theater. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. So what exactly is, how would you describe what is the theater? Uh, Hatbox Theater is uh, what I'd call a cooperative venue. Um, we produce, our intention was only to produce one show a year. And our business model is that once a year we have a pitch night and outside production companies uh, come in and they've got two minutes to pitch uh, the projects, the shows that they'd like to do in our upcoming season. And then they provide us with a, a packet of information that we go and review it. And from those pitches, we put together a full year-long season uh, and we sell tickets and the production companies got 60% of the uh, the gate and the venue would get 40% to cover the overhead. Um, but it's a completely volunteer-run organization. There's no employees, there's no salaries, uh, any of that nature, but it's a hundred seat venue. Uh, we repurposed a Coldwater Creek, which was a women's clothing store at the Steeplegate Mall in Concord back in April of 2016 and installed a hundred seats. There is a slightly flexible seating uh, arrangement so we can move the side seats. So it's a thrust theater where people are, there's one main bank of seats and then there are smaller banks of seats on the side. So the mm-hmm. performances happen kind of in the in the middle of all of that, but we can move the side seating to both on one side and make it L-shaped seating. We can add seating on against the fourth wall and make what's called arena style seating where the audience completely surround the actors. Um, So, but it's a, it's a neat menu. We, when we opened in April, 2016 with, you know, a 15 month lease and had no idea whether it was, how it was going to do and whether it would work or not. And uh, since then we've had almost 30,000 people in our little hundred seat venue. And we've had over 700 performances um, in, you know, we're concluding our fifth season uh, actually, this weekend is the last uh, performances of our fifth season, and we open our sixth season on September 11th. So, so you have been open during COVID. Well, we were closed for almost four months. Uh, we shut down on March 16th uh, on a Monday. We finished the run of Lend Me a Tenor, and then we closed, uh, and then we didn't reopen again until July 24th. Okay. Uh, the governor said we could reopen on, on June 29th, I think. But realistically, to get a theatrical performance up and running, you have to rehearse, you have to promote, you have to put all the pieces together, and you can't just, you know, it's not like flicking on a light switch. Um, and realistically, you know, we're taking tentative steps. We're one of the first theaters to reopen in the state. Um, there, there's only one other theater that has been producing ongoing. They closed for a little bit and then they went to a streaming model where they were doing performances only online. Mm. Um, but you know, it's, 
like any other business, you have to have enough revenue to offset your expenditures to justify staying open. And even though we're not technically a not-for-profit, uh, Hapox is an LLC, um, because of the fact that I don't pay myself anything and all of the money kind of gets reinvested into the space, the fact that we had no employees meant we, while we were hurting being closed, and we certainly you know, were going deeper and deeper in the red every month we weren't doing shows, we weren't nearly in as desperate situations as some of the other arts organizations who may have larger workforces, employee bases, and and let's face it, you know, uh, overhead. You know, you get a, yep. a large theatrical venue and they decide to open a new venue and build a $7 million uh, facility like the Capital Center for the Arts did last year. Um, they barely had their grand opening and just were starting to do regular programming and then they got shut down and who knows how long they're going to be, have to stay closed, um, because of the guidelines. But so I, I guess this is an obvious question, but so how is the rest, how is the industry getting by? Are, Are they getting by? Well, most of the uh, performing arts industry, uh, especially the theaters, uh, there's two types of uh, performing arts venues. They're the ones who produce their own programming, and then there are the ones that are called presenting houses, which essentially they they bring touring companies into their venue. You know, they're the places that bring the the touring bands and sometimes touring speakers and not so frequently touring theatrical productions, although often you see like the Broadway tours and stuff like that. Um, Those are mostly not-for-profits. And when we say not-for-profit, it's really important for people to understand. They they say, oh, well, they're not-for-profit. They're not supposed to make any money. Well, they're a business like any other business. They just don't pay shareholders. And they also have the additional benefit of being able to request charitable contributions and people so big donors can write off money if they need to write off you know to to uh, minimize their tax uh liabilities they can donate to charitable organizations and and reduce that that tax liability and so it's a benefit for those organizations that really can't make money or sustain themselves on their own we've taken great pride with, with at hatbox at the fact that since the day we've opened we've basically covered our costs by what what i like to affectionately call butts in seats uh-huh. uh, people actually buying tickets and showing up we don't have uh we have members who essentially buy discounts on future tickets so we have a certain amount of revenue from there we have a small amount of revenue from our season program but pretty much all of our overhead and expenses is covered by uh selling tickets so you know it's hard for us because we need you know we're a small we're 4500 square foot space and the mall uh, management, the mall owners have given us a very good deal on the on the space, such a good deal that we actually have a second space in the mall that we use for rehearsals and set construction and stuff. But you know, our overhead is fairly uh, fairly small compared to the large organizations who have million dollar, you know, multi million dollar mortgages and things of that nature. So, um, you know, we're probably doing slightly better than everybody else. Although, you know, the only uh, money, like the government's been pretty good about uh, making funding available during COVID-19, but because I'm a self-employed performer and Hatbox is an affiliated business, the only funds that I could get were from the the self-employed fund that the state established. And and even then, that was only good for 17% uh, of whatever 
our revenue loss was going to be, whereas the not-for-profits got around 75% of what their ask was. So, you know, and I'm not, uh, I don't like to look at competing because we're not really competing. There's no other theater in the capital region that does what we do. There are community theaters. There are a couple of community theaters who own their own venues, Mm -hmm. um, but there are very, most those community theaters only run their own programming for the most part. Whereas we own the venue, but we do very little of our own productions because we're really here to develop and sustain a community of artists. And we Mm -hmm. started the venue. I started the venue because, you know, when I was cutting my teeth as a theater performer, I did a production of Greater Tuna, which was a two man play in the Anna Carico Music Theater, which was a little 150 seat venue here in Concord. And it was a great venue because lots of groups could rent the space, put on their shows. And, and it, it was not terribly expensive to, uh, to acquire time in the space. And it made for a very dynamic situation, environment. So there was a lot of interest in producing stuff. And when that venue closed in 2004, um, there was a a lot of dynamic art that was not being done anymore in Concord Mm -hmm. because they couldn't afford to rent the large spaces. So I like to say that we're a for-profit mission-based cooperative venue. Um, but we're not really for profit cause I don't make any money, off of it. <laughs> but oh, I did yeah. get a little money, but again, as a percentage of the whole, my 17%, because I'm so frugal, I'm a Yankee through and through, uh, the 17% I got probably will help, uh, hold me off for six months. Whereas the 75% that, uh, some of the larger venues, the not for profits might hold them off for three months. Right. You know what I mean? So right. every venue is different. Every venue is struggling. Um, Mm -hmm. and we don't, none of us know when the audiences are going to come back. You know, I had hoped we would get 20% of our seating in here. And so far the month of programming we've done, we've averaged about 16 ticket sales per performance. Okay. Um, I was going to ask you, are you allowed to go? Are you a 50%? How's that, how's that work now? Uh, 50% is not a real number. Um, there's no theater in the state of New Hampshire who can actually get to that 50% number and to do social distancing. The numbers, and I was on the group that actually helped to, to develop the guidelines. Um, yeah. That 50% is a, a wonderful number to, to say out loud as a politician. Um, but in reality, we can't seat more than 34 or 35, depending on uh, how it is. I mean, ideally, we could seat 59 in here if we had six groups, one group of 16, one group of 14, two uh-huh. groups of six on right. each side, you know, but that's a completely unrealistic way of seating. So, you know, the bigger venues, um, you know, that seat 800 or a thousand people, they might be able to seat 200, 250 or so, but then they run into other challenges. And as we had, we had months, literally a couple of months worth of conversations weekly, sometimes uh, as often as three or four times a week with side groups trying to figure out how to, what to recommend to the governor. Um, You know, our biggest challenge, there's two things. There's confidence. We want the audience to feel confident that they can come safely and, and experience art and the, and then trust. We need uh, their trust uh, to um, so that they understand that we're not going to do something that put them at risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like our venue, well, we're not required, uh, to have audience members with just like restaurants, audience members 
according to the guidelines, can come in wearing a mask, and when they get to their seat, they can take their mask off. However, no theater in the state of New Hampshire that I'm aware of, although with the possible exception of the Palace Theater, um, has been allowing people to take their masks off. We're all, any of us who have opened, we need everybody to keep their masks on because if all it takes is one case to right. shut us down, you know, possibly for good. Uh -huh. um, so it's really important to us that we do everything that we can uh -huh. to uh, be safe, not just for our audiences, but, you know, also our, our actors, our technicians, our workers, and frankly, the industry as a whole. You know, I've, I've been traveling as a performer and performing all around the United States and over in Europe uh, for almost 30 years. And, you know, I have friends who, you know, are touring lighting designers. I have friends who've worked with Cirque du Soleil or Blue Man Group. And I have friends who are Broadway producers and West End London producers. And the impact on our field is really traumatic um, because we really can't reopen, not at any sort of scale. Uh, and we can't really re train our techniques and, and migrate easily to another field. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not really easy just to jump uh, from, you know, a very specialized field like lighting design or sound design or stage management to another field. It's possible, but the people who are hiring aren't, may need more imagination than they possess when it comes to trying to migrate what their expectations. Stage managers make great project managers. Lighting designers make great events professionals because they've seen so many events. They've seen what's worked and what hasn't. Um, directors in the field, but there's no work. And, and at this point, you know, we don't know when, if there's going to be work. And by that point, how many people in the industry have migrated to other fields just to survive and may not come back. Yep. So we're going to have a huge creative drain um, that's going to probably have an impact on the field for 10 to 15 years to come. I can, I can imagine. Now, have you, have you considered doing any outdoor stuff? Do you have, the, have that capability? We have looked at different outdoor uh, possible venues. Um, the biggest challenge is the overhead that, you know, to do the type of work that we do in our little intimate space and make it feel the same outdoors means we're asking our producers to switch gears. You know, the nice thing about working in a little tiny venue like Hatbox, where nobody's more than four seats away from the action and you're really, you know, it's, it's like watching a film, but live. You get to see really what I like to call micro expressions on people's faces. The emotional impact is really powerful. But if you go outside and now all of a sudden your audiences are 25, 30 feet away, whereas before you were eight feet away uh -huh. and you have to mic people up, it's a different type of work. And the community that we've developed in our space come here because they want to do this type of work. They don't yep. want to do the other type of work. And because a lot of them are not full-time professionals, they're doing this as passion projects or as a way to do something they may have trained for in college, but then they went, oh crap, I actually have to feed myself and I have to send my family to school and I have to you know, plan for retirement and whatnot. New Hampshire is not a hotspot of full-time professional entertainers uh, mm -hmm. or technicians or whatnot, that we have a lot of incredibly talented, incredibly dedicated people um, who come out and do this for the pleasure of it and for mm -hmm. the challenge of it, um, but they do it mainly for the love of it. So, you know, getting them to 
wear a mask and go perform outdoors in a venue that they're not comfortable with uh, working, you know, may not be priority number one for them. Yep. I can see it. Now I know this is maybe not a, it's not apples and oranges because music performance is, um, I imagine is very different than what you do. But another example I'm thinking of is uh, you're probably familiar with the Tupelo music hall. Or oh yeah. yeah. I know Scott. He's a great guy and they're okay. doing some really great work there. Well, they really, um, you know, back in March when this happened, I remember that Scott put out this video uh, on YouTube it, it, about, you know, he was getting all emotional about how he was so concerned about his business because just the way it works, you know, they pay the bands ahead of time and they sell tickets. And now everyone's asking for their money back for the tickets because of the canceled shows and he doesn't have the cash flow to do it. And, and you know, he was all concerned and he was basically begging people you know, please take a credit. I, I, you know, I can't give you the money, that type thing right away. But he seems, you know, and I don't know how his finances were going, but they seem to have turned it around because they've turned their parking lot into a, basically a drive-in theater, which is really neat. Yeah, I, I can't speak to his business model and whether or not he's, uh, you know, whether they're making money or not. I know Scott and I have served on these committees uh, together, and I know that we share you know, information about how it's working for our venue and how it's working for their venue. You know, he's doing, they're putting in a lot of work and a lot of energy just to to be able to sustain the venue so that they can eventually come back when it, uh, you know, when it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big struggle that he's having to deal with, again, Hatbox, we're self-producers. We've been producing our own acts for a long time. Um, he's a presenting venue and he's really at the mercy of the touring acts. And if the touring acts don't come back, you know, he's relying on local performers and local artists, which is great. I think that one of the best things to come out of this, um, if, if there's any, uh, silver lining, so to speak, is that it has really, I think, brought to people's attention, how important local culture is Mm -hmm. and how important it is to, uh, to, you know, financially and physically sustain those organizations who are here and that make our, our communities special. Um, you know, the United States, just like everywhere around the world, the United States has particularly been becoming a homogenized experience. You can go anywhere in the United States and expect to see the same Starbucks on the same corners, you mm-hmm. know, and it feels, the, and I'm, I don't want to knock Starbucks. They have great, you know, coffee and, and great stuff, but you know, there's also lots of wonderful local venues that are people and that money stays local, you know, and, and, you know, I, I railed against, you know, the big box stores when they were first coming to town, the Walmarts and the things of that nature, because they'd come in and they would under uh, cut the local merchants until the local merchants, merchants starved and shut down. And then their prices would jump back up again, you know, because they don't have to compete and they can afford to lose money for a period of time knowing they can starve out the local economy. Um, And, you know, and I don't want to say that Walmart's an evil institution. There's lots of large organizations that make great um, decisions for their stockholders. And so if you own stock in them, great, you're probably benefiting from that. However, you know, without your local restaurants, you know, without your local, um, performers without your local, you know, media, you know, newspapers, I look at newspapers, you know, um, they're a, they're a a shadow of what they once were and how important they were to our communities. They're still important, but because they haven't been able to pivot in the same way to online that other companies were, 
um, you know, we're going to lose a really vital source of local news, local information. Yeah, no, you're right. The, the Milford Cabinet is one of the oldest independently owned uh, newspapers in the country. It was, it's no longer is because, you know, they were doing poorly and the Natural Telegraph bought them and then somebody bought the Telegraph and now it's owned by some big conglomerate and it's, you're right, it's a shadow of itself. It's the same on the seacoast. I have the great privilege of performing at the Players Ring. Uh, I think this is my eighth year of annual performances in Portsmouth. And they had a really wonderful, like a thing called the Spotlight Awards, which were uh, looking at local, uh, you know, restaurants, local providers, and they would hold a big, you know, kind of gala event and they would hand out awards each year for, you know, innovation and for, you know, uh, you know, newcomers to the community. It was a major deal. And again, though that was sponsored by the local, you know, newspaper, that's no longer a local newspaper now. And, you know, it's, again, they do the best they can uh, with what they've been handed. But, you know, I think, you know, again, I'm very glad that the larger organizations locally are starting to use local artists, because the hope is that, you know, we can keep an artist here, in our community, there hasn't been enough work to really have a, 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 a livable wage as a as a full time performing artist in the state, unless you left, you know, right. and our media like WMUR, you know, very rarely again, now owned by another company from away, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, they, they do some local uh, promotions and things of that nature. But, you know, you can pretty much be guaranteed that if you want attention on Channel 9, you have to leave and do something elsewhere and be successful and then come back and that's when you're going to get the you know and it's so important for us to celebrate who we are and and what we have locally so i'm optimistic about it all um and again i think it's the same thing with politics people are so disenfranchised with uh what's happening at the national level that they're now starting to pay attention locally especially with the school situation right now oh gosh Um, you know there are people showing up for school board meetings that never thought they would ever attend a school board meeting well, you know, we talk about the silver linings to this whole thing. Um, uh, our school board, I mean, everything's crazy now because of you know, debating what to do coming back to school. But w- we've always had very, you know, uh, engaged school board meetings, but that would be maybe 30, 40 people. We're getting on our, on because they're on Zoom now, we're getting mm-hmm. 200 people a night showing up to school board meetings, which yeah. is great. A lot more people are being are participating, but combine that with social media and people complaining about everything under the sun, it 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 feels wrong. But it but I think part of it is good. Yeah, I mean, social media is a blessing and a curse as well. You know, it it it's fascinating that people can spend their time online and curate their existence, so they only show you the stuff for the most part that's going well for them, yep. and so you get this. Um, a perhaps overly optimistic view of everybody else's life. And when you compare it with the warts that exactly. are on your own life, it can have a negative impact on you from a social perspective. Right. But Happy anniversary to my best friend in the world. And I made the best choice, you know, whatever. And it's like, ah, if you're saying that it's probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that's that old adage, you know, like, uh, you know, you dress for the job you want. Well, <laughs> you yeah. know, sometimes you project that image that you want other people to believe. And, and that can be good and can be bad, you know, but again, I think the fact that people are taking advantage of the outdoors, going outside and actually getting to know the people who live around them in a yep. way, you know, that's been a great aspect. You know, they're getting tired of 
watching, you know, binge watching television on, on Netflix and they're looking for other options. And I think that we may well see a, a renaissance of people getting actively involved. As, as an elected yeah. official, you know, it's the same small group of people who run for these offices and people um, are not always aware of how much work and how much energy it takes to do them and how important they are. But they're, they're also always happy to complain when something happens that they don't like. But the only time they show up is when they want to complain about something. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. But interesting you said that about getting out and doing things. Uh, we had a budget committee. It wasn't actually a budget committee. We have a capital improvements committee in town. And we met last night and we were discussing um, uh, sidewalk projects that have been like kind of built up over the years that would hit, haven't been done yet. And we're going to really try to push sidewalks this year because we think it's a good it's a good time to sell it because so many people are out walking now because they want to get out of their house. And it's true. You, you go, you see people walking up on the streets all, all the time now, which is great. Um, but it, it's a, it's a good uh, argument for sidewalks and we're going to use that this year. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Anything you can do to get people out and about their neighborhoods is really important. And you have such a wonderful little community, having that oval right there in the center of town yeah. uh, and direct access to all of the, you have the, the river there, you have the, uh, you know, all the shops around the oval and some really high quality restaurants. You have some really great restaurants right downtown there in Milford. So, yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. Um, so let, let's just talk a little bit more about you rather than the hat, hat box. Cause I, I'm going through some of my notes here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, again? I don't remember which website I was talking, I was reading this on, but you do some. I don't know what you call this. Is this the impressionario stuff? But you you work in character. It says here that you you perform as a 19th century Boston-based performer, Jonathan Harrington. Yes. What, what's that all about? Um, I have a good friend who uh, I've I've been a member of the New England Magic Collectors Association for uh, at least 20 years. And, you know, these are people who are interested in the history of the, the profession of magic. And uh, what's interesting in New Hampshire that a lot of people, although more now, because there was a book that came out uh, about two years ago now on him, uh, the first American-born professional magician of note uh, actually retired in New Hampshire. His name was Richard Potter. And uh, Potter was um, believed to be, um, you know, he, his mother was a, a, a former slave and his, and worked on a, a farm of a kind of a British, um, I don't want to say nobleman, but a governance person in Massachusetts. And Potter, so Potter was black, but he toured all around the United States over the course of five years and, and amassed a, a substantial fortune that enabled him to build an estate in, um, in Andover, New Hampshire and retire there. And a friend of mine in uh, the, uh, the magic collector's world has been performing as Potter since like 1969. And he was getting uh, up there and we've been very good friends. His name is Robert Olson. And he had um, expressed interest in, uh, he, he basically, he invited me to take over his show when he retires and he's no longer doing it, which was a very flattering thing. Uh, you know, in the magic world, it's similar to the way the music world was years ago in terms of having a master and apprentice type of relationship, you know, mm -hmm. where you study with one person and learn their work and why it works and how it works. And so he offered me the Potter show, but 
I'm not going to take that over until he's done doing it. And I didn't want to try to step into his shoes when I wasn't ready to wear them. So I did a little bit of research and I stumbled upon a guy who uh, was in the magic history books just after Potter and who knew Potter. Uh, and his name was Jonathan Harrington. And I, I was further intrigued that in one of the magic history books I read um, that he was supposedly buried in Warner, New Hampshire, which I've later found out not to be true. But Harrington was born in 1811 in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. He died in 1881 in North Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is now Revere. Mm -hmm. And he was a ventriloquist and a performer. He worked alongside P.T. Barnum when Barnum was managing the aquarial gardens in Boston. And he traveled uh, all around the eastern seaboard uh, as far west, we believe, as Ohio. And about 10 years ago, I started performing as Harrington. I did research on magic of that time period, what he was likely to have performed um, based on the broadsides, the posters of shows he performed in different places. And I found a, a, a woodcut illustration of him performing in 1852 and hired a costume designer to basically reconstruct the suit he wore in that show in 1852 uh, and I started performing those. Um, predominantly, I've done most of my performances of that show at Canterbury Shaker Village. Uh, oh, okay. I do. I've been doing six shows over uh, two weekends uh, as part of their Christmas in Canterbury, and it's a really neat opportunity because you're performing somebody who is who actually lived, who is a human being that we can actually. We can go to the house that he he owned on Beach Street in Revere. Uh, the name of the street is still Harrington Way. Um, you know, there's a lot we know about him. There's also a lot we don't know about him. And then trying to recreate the speech patterns and the what somebody would say from that era and perform magic that isn't really performed nowadays is really a, like traveling back in time. It's a window into a whole nother era. And in lots of ways, it's 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 probably enchanting in a way that performing contemporary magic is maybe not as much so because it's it like i said you're traveling in time it's not just oh look a card appeared or a, a bird appeared or whatever it's mm -hmm. uh wow it's 1852 franklin pierce was just elected uh, the president of the United States from New Hampshire. And I get to comment on the fact that, you know, well, Massachusetts has already had two presidents. I'm sure New Hampshire will have another president at some point in the future. Um, you know, so there's an opportunity to kind of give some playful nods to what's contemporary in a fun uh, and creative way by living in that person. And I got to tell you, it's been a really great challenge for me as a theater artist to try to embody a specific character. When I perform as a magician, as you may well recall, I kind of take the approach of, there's like four different, um, I don't know what you'd call them. There's, there's four different characters you can play in magic. You can be the wizard, you can be the uh, the mystic, you can be the, you know, and one of those four categories is the trickster. Uh, and that's the one who is more about the comedy. It's about the jokes. It's about the um, kind of poking fun and being playful. And my character as a contemporary performer is, you know, I'm pretty much the idiot. I'm the catalyst. I start the show and then I'm as impressed and amazed as the audience is when stuff happens and when stuff goes right. When I play Harrington, 
it's a whole different thing. It's like a theater piece because I'm studying the character. I'm, I'm talking about his life and the people he knew and the people he was exposed to uh, based in a historic setting. And then also doing magic that can have a, a very profound impact on people. And I, I think people also find that they they respond more strongly sometimes to the magic I do as Harrington, in part because they don't expect to be fooled by it, because they're so charmed by this guy. And then when something, you know, miraculous happens, it's like, oh, isn't this what? You know, it, it's yeah. this, this huge discrepancy. Um, so it's I have really uh, adored uh, playing Harrington and researching Harrington. I actually presented at a magic history conference up in Montreal on Harrington. I've published um, articles about his life uh, in magic history journals, and I'm still continuing to learn about him. Every every couple of months, I dig into his past and try to find, you know, what what has been unearthed recently. Oh, that's interesting. That that reminds me a little bit about like the old medieval manor down in Boston, where they had, all the performers are performing, you know, the old time characters, and that's that's really neat. Yeah, it's historic recreation. Um, and in fact, one of the most enchanting performances I've done is Harrington. Um, I have a, an acquaintance who organizes these events. They're living history events. And these people all hand stitch their own clothing. They research a time period and then they rent a historic venue and go to this historic venue to try to literally step back in time. So they're trying to talk. They're doing the cooking the way you would have cooked in that time. They're reading books from that era. They're having conversations in that era. They're playing games. Well, this group invited me to perform at uh, a place called Sharkmouth, which is an estate uh, in Manchester uh, by the sea uh, mm-hmm. down in Massachusetts. And it's on a cliff overlooking the ocean. And it's at the end of this long driveway where you can't see any other houses. And this house was built after uh, the Revolutionary War. And in fact, it has a three-story staircase and a grand hall. And the three-story staircase came out of John Hancock's mansion in Boston when they dismantled it and they put it on horseback uh, on a carriage and hauled it out to the ocean and built this mansion, this estate around it. So I got to perform in costume and character as Harrington, but I also got to have dinner with them before in costume and character as Harrington. (laughs) And then I performed in candlelight in the great hall in this estate and it was it was really a a remarkable experience and there are some photographs from it um but to have all of your audience there you know and we're all every single one of us is traveling back in time was really enchanting for me oh that must that must be really cool yeah So, so who's professor ignatius mckenzie awesome the fourth i am awesome um (laughs) Uh, Ignatius McKenzie. Oh, is that what it is? I am awesome. Okay, I didn't see that. Yes, I am awesome. Uh, he is kind of again in the vein of the tricksters and and that kind of stuff. He's part scientist, he uh, mad scientist to some degree. He's part magician. He's part con man. Uh, he's a rogue and rock raconteur. But you know his contemporary side is that he's the fourth generation of performers um, going back to his. Uh, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, who was a stage performer in Europe. uh, And the modern-day version, the fourth in the line, is now a guy who shares cool science stuff and uh, and magic and perceptual tricks uh, in a way that 
kind of explores, and I and this is coming a little bit out of my own interest. It's kind of exploring how people can see magic. You know, why? How is it that you can see something that's an optical illusion and be fooled by it, even when you know what's happening? And so it's kind of an exploration of how we perceive the world around us and how that's sometimes can be used against us. You know, con men or swindlers can use, you know, use your interests against you. But, you know, that also sets us apart from most of the animals. Most animals don't have a significant amount of imagination. Uh, And yet what we do in magic is about imagination and expectation. It's, It's enabled us to to conquer the world. It's enabled us to conquer weather. It's enabled us to be, you know, as close to being godlike as possible. If we don't mm-hmm. like something, we we change it, and we we can figure out how to do that. So that kind of comes out of the Ignatius McKenzie Awesome, the Awesome Wonder Show, came out of my desire to do my sleight of hand show in opera houses and tour with it. And so I've done it in a number of opera houses: um, uh, Newport Opera House, Franklin Opera House, Gene's Playhouse up north, uh, and others. Um, as a way to kind of explore those things on the big stage uh, compared to what I do with discovering magic at Hatbox and the player's ring and other smaller venues, which is more about the sleight of hand show and we get into con games and things of that nature. But it's a similar approach. It's just a slightly different, uh, slightly different character. And by playing a character larger than life like that, um, mm-hmm. I can really, uh, you know, share with the audience some of my interests. Oh, that's, that's cool. So what what would you say so I've got a list of terms here that that I've always wondered what what is the difference between vaudeville and burlesque Well vaudeville and burlesque are two entirely different genres of work you know vaudeville at one time you know was a rotating vaudeville which meant you had a series of acts and it would start at 12 o'clock in the afternoon and it would end at midnight so for 12 yeah. hours there would be this ongoing performance uh, of acts that might be five minutes it might be 12 minutes it might be 14 minutes and that might be recycled a couple times in the day but you could walk in at any time into the theater and and take in a show um but vaudeville was generally very, uh, the intention was to be family friendly. Now, bear in mind, vaudeville, which, you know, was the precursor to radio, um, was a lot. Well, I was going to say, I sometimes associate that with early Three Stooges and Lola and Hardy. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. Oh, very much so. Um, okay. All of the silent comedians started out either in vaudeville or British Music Hall. Charlie okay. Chaplin performed in British Music Hall. Buster Keaton performed in vaudeville. The Marx Brothers performed in vaudeville. Pretty much all of the celebrities that were early celebrities in television and then later in film got their uh, their efforts performing on stage. And vaudeville was really kind of the first time that um, a smaller act um, could make a living doing it. In fact, vaudeville was all about developing an act, a a, a tight 15 minutes, uh, and then taking it on tour. And you could live on that tight 15 minutes for 20 to 30 years doing the same act. Um, You'd hop on a train and you'd get off in the next town and you'd do the act there. Then you'd hop back on the train and go to the next town. And so it it was only enabled because of, uh, you know, the mass transportation. You know, so vaudeville is all about that. Burlesque was also uh, a mass transportation thing, but vaudeville, uh, while vaudeville was more family friendly, uh, burlesque was decidedly not so. Um, Burlesque was, you know, while it had comedians and whatnot, it was all about um, 
seduction uh, and titillation. It was about using the female form as a way to, uh, you know, keep a particular demographic uh, entertained. And there was high and low burlesque. So low burlesque is much more akin to uh, what we might call a gentleman's club today, uh, a strip club or something of that nature. And high burlesque was much more artistic and much more theatrically done. You know, like the the flappers of the 20s, is that? Well, flappers of the 20s was a different thing. That wasn't a burlesque thing. That was a a style thing. And that was about women taking control of their own, um, you know, destinies and their own um, Mm -hmm. sexuality. Whereas burlesque houses were often, you know, and burlesque houses lasted until the early 1970s in some places. Jay Leno used to perform on a burlesque house in Boston. And he hmm. would get up on stage and perform, do, tell stand-up while the uh, women were stripping on the stage. Uh, <laughs> and you get to be a really good comedian, uh, you know, because you've got to be tight. You've got to be fast uh, if you're competing with that type of an audience. But burlesque, there's now what we call neo-vaudeville and neo-burlesque, which are uh, reinventions of the form uh, that, that highlight certain aspects of vaudeville certain aspects of uh burlesque in a way to you know and we've hosted burlesque shows here at at hatbox uh and they're usually not bump and grind shows they're usually well choreographed pieces with custom uh costumes and storylines and you know a way to kind of explore the more adult side of performance but it's not a play. It's, it's mm-hmm. a very short piece. So burlesque and vaudeville are similar in that regard, that they were about short acts. Oh, that's cool. And so you kind of cover the cover it all up there. Well, magic, you know, we have what I like to call alternative shows at Hatbox. Uh, and the alternative programming are like concerts, stand-up comedy, improv comedy, magic. We've had a circus show here um, yep. in our space with a seer wheel and stuff like that. Um, so we've had puppet shows. So, you know, those types of what what you would call alternative acts, they're not theater in that they don't tell a story over the course of one or two acts with characters and an arc. It's more about an exhibition of a skill mm-hmm. um, or exploration of a type of art form. Cabaret is like that too. Cabarets are, are an opportunity for a singer to come out and sing one song uh, and tell a story using the song. Uh, and original cabarets were, you know, really serious musical places that were, you know, have a direct background uh, into the salon style entertainments where a singer would sing classical music. But then it migrated to popular song. It migrated to jazz and standards and all that kind of stuff. Oh, neat. Yeah, I'm just looking at some pictures right now of, of that of that theater, your theater. It's, it's really cool. That, that looks like a be you know, a, a nice place for like a an acoustic guitar sitting on a stool. Oh yeah, know, that, kind of, that kind of a folk folky kind of almost like the I don't know if the '60s beat music is is quite like that. But I can see that happening, or the or the beat poets just up there doing slam poetry. <laughs> oh yeah, we've had that. We had a series called um, Oh gosh, I'm going to play Tales. It was a spoken word series. So uh, monthly we had uh, acts come in and do poetry and tell stories. Um, And that was really great in this space. Again, the proximity to it. Um, Yeah, it's not dissimilar to the coffee houses that you saw in the 1950s and whatnot. But, you know, it's definitely a, you know, our venue is definitely a theater space. But, excuse me, 
I have long been fascinated by all aspects of performance. And when mm -hmm. it came time to put together Hatbox, which I had been uh, collecting pieces, I actually presented at a at a conference down in Connecticut a few years ago called the Creative Communities Exchange, which was established by the New England Foundation for the Arts. And I presented on Hatbox. And part of what I talk about, like if you wanna build a theater for next to nothing, you know, uh, start collecting stuff 25 years earlier. I mean, the <laughs> theater seats that are in our venue were recycled from um, the high school my daughter went at, and I helped on the school board to uh, renovate the space, and they were throwing away the theater seats uh, that were like 17 years old and putting in new theater seats because the cost was going to be slightly more to put in new theater seats, but the lifespan would be you know, a little longer. And I hated to see the theater seats thrown away. And I found three other venues besides myself to, to take them. And it saved the school district money because they didn't have to pay to dispose of them. And other organizations got an opportunity to either create or upgrade their venues. Uh, and the Kearsarge seats were my third set of theater seats. I actually had another set of seats from the Cinema 93 in Concord. Those theater seats were used at M&D Productions up in North Conway for almost a decade. Uh, until they moved into their new venue at Eastern Soaps Playhouse. And then another batch of the uh, seats that I owned from the Scenic Theater in Pittsfield, New Hampshire, where I did community theater. And those were 100-year-old theater seats from the Grand Army of the Republic uh, Hall that was converted into a movie and, and theater as well. So I, I'm, I'm a good Yankee, thrifty. I like to <laughs> use things until they die. That's great. Is it is the term hat box? Is that at all meaningful with theater, or why why'd you name it hat box? Uh, I always liked working in intimate venues, and an intimate venue in the theater is commonly referred to, especially if they are flexible in terms of how you can arrange seating. They're referred to as black box theaters. Uh, yes, I've, I have heard that term. And so when I was trying to figure out, you know, back when I was younger, I used to think that being clever was a good thing, and I still enjoy trying to be clever. But when you're clever, oftentimes it's you can easily confuse people. And so I try very hard to keep titles as simple as possible. And hat box is not easy to misspell. Um, it's, it's, it, it is evocative. It's simple, but it's evocative because you never know what's inside a hat box until you open it. Uh -huh. um, and so you can have lots of different hats in a hat box. And in the theater, we often wear lots of different hats. Sometimes you're a producer, sometimes you're a lighting designer, sometimes you're on stage. And so when I was trying to find a good, simple name for the theater and it came down to, oh, oh goodness, we're ready to uh, open the theater and yet we don't have a name for it yet, I took the short route and made a list and said, can we do Jewel Box? No, I, not everybody knows how to spell Jewel. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to mistake some of those. So I just, you know, I, I tried to make it as simple and as short as possible. And then it turned out that that exercise made for a nice, simple, evocative name. Yeah, that's cool. I like the name. Yeah. That's good. So I don't want to, I get one question I want to ask you before, before we stop. And this kind of goes back to when, when I saw you down in Nashua and I had, this was when my kids were young, my kids were all grown and gone, but I got the distinct impression that one of my kids, I won't say, say which one it was. So it doesn't embarrass him if he listens to this, that he was really annoying you. It struck me because he, he loved what you were doing and he followed you around the whole day. Like, you know, show it to me <laughs> again, show it to me again, kind of thing. And I was getting embarrassed myself. So I'm just wondering, 
do you have any real like horror stories? I got to believe if you do kids parties and stuff, you've got to have some pretty classic stories, I would think. Well, I haven't done kids parties in well over probably 15 years at this point. I think I've done one kid party uh, and that was for a, a fellow magician friend of mine who his granddaughter was you know, turning five and he, he didn't, he was a, a famous memory expert. In fact, I did a lot of book work with him and he was, uh, became very wealthy as a memory expert, but he was fascinated by card magic. And I got the opportunity when he called me and wanted to know, Hey, who can, you know, anybody local who can do a show like this for me? I, I said, well, I'll pull my show out of retirement. I can't let you just have anybody. I want to go <laughs> and do this for your granddaughter kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, there's lots of stories. You know, if you are, uh, if you perform for any length of time, something is always going to go wrong or something is going to uh, come up unexpected in a show. And I probably can share, you know, as far as annoying, I'm sure your son was not annoying me at all or daughter or whoever it was. Um, the, uh, you know, I think that people do get fascinated and they really want to see it again in part because some of them want to figure out how it works. Some yep. of them just want to recreate the experience and feel that moment uh, where the rub, rug is ripped out from underneath them and they're left floating in the air. It's both a, a wonderful feeling and kind of a terrifying, terrifying feeling. And so a lot of people want to redo that, but I have a couple of really interesting uh, fond memories of touring. I know I did a winter carnival show for, you know, uh, in a high school, uh, uh, a high school gymatorium. So it has stage along one side of the wall and the audience were sitting in bleachers and chairs on the, on the floor. And often I have audience participation in my show. And this was a, an illusion show that I had invited a couple of my other uh, performer friends to participate on. And I closed the show uh, generally in those days. And the second to last piece was a, a piece with an audience volunteer. And I usually get a young boy up on stage and it, it's, it involved me not necessarily understanding what he was doing and he not understanding what I was doing. And there was, so there's a lot of comedy byplay. They became a, a star on the, on the stage. Well, this boy was laughing so hard, you know, he just could not stop laughing. He was just enjoying himself to no end. And I remember standing in the lights on the stage and looking off into the wings and my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who was now my wife <coughs> has been my wife for 24 years now. Um, I remember looking in the wings and she was uh, mouthing something at me and, and pointing. And I looked at her and I, I just nodded and held a thumbs up because it, we were having such a great time and the kid was having such a great time. And I just kept going. And then I turned back in the wings a moment or two later and I saw her shaking her head no and pointing her finger down. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is going great. We're all having a great time. And I looked down at what she was pointing at and the kid had laughed so hard, he had wet himself on stage and he was standing there in a puddle and he didn't even know it had happened. You know, this kid was maybe six or eight years old at the time or whatever. Um, and he was standing there and I didn't know it, but the audience obviously was aware of it and the kid was not aware of it. So at the end, I couldn't finish the, the piece the way I would normally like to and send him back to a seat. So I had to figure out a way to kind of you know, turn him and send him off into the wings and invite his mother to come up or whatever without embarrassing because it's so important to do that. But yeah, you know, there's lots of those wow. times. I had one event. Um, 
I, I was the technical director for the cat company, which was a um, summer theater program. And one night, uh, the, the people who were working for me, uh, the, that were building the sets and helping to set up the lighting and that kind of stuff, we had, we got together and just hung out for a while and they'd been bugging me to do some magic for them for a while. And, uh, you know, I was like, all right, I'll just do one trick. And so I, uh, I took a card out of a deck of cards and I placed it face down on a table. And I said uh, to one of them, I said, name any card. And the guy got combated with me. He's like, no, you're going to find a way to do it. I was like, just name a card. <laughs> and, uh, and then finally, the other people around the room got, got ticked off at this guy not answering the question. And so uh, one of them just said the name of the card, Seven of Clubs. And I looked at him and I looked at the card and I looked at the guy who was making all the ruckus. I said, turn it over. And the guy reached out and he's like, no way. I was like, turn it over. And he turned it over and it was the seven of clubs. <laughs> and it's nothing that I did. It was oh, completely really? 100% coincidental. It was one of those wow. you know, incredibly fortunate moments. And at that point, they're like, do another. I'm like, nope, that's it for me. <laughs> really? I, I can't follow go that. High note, go out on a high note. <laughs> Why tempt the fates? So, but yeah, no, I've experienced everything. I mean, uh, people getting hurt on stage, people, uh, you know, uh, grabbing things and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think everybody in, in a theater performance or a magic performance, pretty much everybody who's on stage, if you're not a jerk about what you do, they, they want you to succeed. And they want you to have a good time and they want to have a good time. So for the most part, I have very relatively few what I would call horror stories, even after thousands and thousands of shows at this point. I have lots of great memories of strange things happening on stage, but generally they're not uh, generally not bad things. No, that's good. That's good. Those, those, are, those are funny stories. I can, I can picture them both. That's good. So we're kind of getting up there in time. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? I think we well, covered a pretty broad stroke here. Yeah, I've I've been very fortunate uh, in my career to do a lot of to try a lot of different things. Um, I you know when I got interested in magic, I you know the, I, I didn't do the normal route. I started um, doing shows very quickly and I had a theater background. So it enabled me to do shows at a high level pretty quickly because I had the high production values to do it that way. But I taught uh, kids magic and I opened a magic shop and I owned a magic shop for almost 10 years. Uh, In fact, it's New Hampshire's last magic shop because there has not been another magic shop since mine closed. But that enabled me to connect up with lots of my uh, of my magic idols around the planet. I've had the opportunity to do book projects with them and, and to meet them and travel around the world and perform. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that I, I think if I had anything to sum up, you know, there's, there's a lots of ways to, uh, make a life. Uh, there's, there's a difference between making a living and making a life. And, you know, while I am not famous and never will be famous and I'm an have never wanted to be famous. I've had the opportunity to really reach out and have experiences that, that if I thought harder about it before I did them, I might never have done them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that we're living in a, a time of, of fear and uncertainty and it's really easy to shut down and to not do things. And yet this is the perfect time to get out there and try things because 
how much worse could it get? You know, <laughs> when, when you're younger, you know, and you don't have very much, you're much more fearless. When you get older and you have a mortgage and children and all that kind of stuff, we have a tendency to get more and more conservative. Um, I have resisted that edge. I really am as outraged today as I was when I was younger. In fact, people ask me about serving on the school board. And while I think the school board uh, and the school district I worked in are really an exceptional school district, you know, when people ask me, oh, you did a lot of really good work in the district and you must be really pleased with where things are at. And I said, yeah, I'm pleased with what we've accomplished, but I'm not content. Mm -hmm. I think that you can always improve. I think that, but you also have to be kind and considerate and be just aware of the impact you have on the people around you. And it's so easy if, if I had, and I don't have any regrets. Um, I think it was Steven Spielberg who actually said that he didn't want to regret the things he hadn't done. He wanted to regret the things he did, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And by always having that approach, it's very hard to regret what you did because you're so busy trying to do something else. And I've been really fortunate and I invite everyone to, you know, everybody has different priorities, but remember that we're all, you know, kind of on this journey together and apart and try to respect one another, try to be kind to one another, try to lift people up and support one another. Uh, and, you know, it's human to be, to want to compare yourself to others. But when you compare yourself to somebody else, you're more likely to be frustrated and and upset about where you are and all that matters is that you're moving forward yeah. and that you're loving and that you're, you know, getting to, to enjoy this journey. So enjoy it. Those are perfect words to end on. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really, I, I, re I really enjoyed this. I, I learned a lot. Well, thanks. This was great. I really enjoyed it. So great to reconnect with you. Uh, say hi to your children for me. I, I will. And, and you said you're not going to get famous, but this might do it. This might be the launching point. One can hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Andrew, where can they find out more information about your theater and all your other endeavors? Well, if they want to find out what's happening at the theater, they can go to hatboxnh.com. That's hatboxnh.com. Or if they want to find out about my public performance schedule as a magician or want to hire me for one of their events, they can find me at absolutelymagic.com or absomagic.com. Just do a search for me and you can find me and I will be there. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and maybe a little learned a little bit more about the performing arts in, in New Hampshire and New England. Our theme music today was written and performed by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or most major podcasting applications. You can also stream directly from our website at granitetalk.com. As always, we welcome any and all feedback or suggestions that you may have for future episodes. We invite you to go to the Granite Talk Facebook page at facebook.com slash granitetalk. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us again for another episode of Granite Talk. <laughs>